0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We are very privileged to have Dr. Kathleen Fenton the Chief of the Advanced Technologies and Surgery Branch at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And today we are very lucky to have her talk to us about her very illustrious career, as well as discuss an article that she recently published in JTCBS. So Dr. Fenton, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. It's really a privilege. You've had a very unique career, and I was wondering if you could give us some background about yourself and talk to us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk to young people
1: that are interested in
0: cardiothoracic
1: surgery. There's so many different things that you can do with a career in cardiothoracic surgery. I'm a congenital heart surgeon by training. And when I think about my career, I think about basically three different phases. I'm kind of in the third phase right now. I don't know if there's going to be a fourth phase. But I started out after I finished my training doing the typical academic work. I did clinical surgery, taught residents and students, had a research lab where I did research in fetal cardiac surgery, and wrote papers and things like that. So, you know, the trifecta clinical work, teaching and research. After doing that for a number of years, I felt like I really, in a way, I wanted to give back And that was prompted by two things. It was prompted by when I had been a resident, I was in Boston Children's Hospital doing research. And Dr. Aldo Castaneda was there at that time. And he was always talking about the need for developing cardiac surgical programs in other countries. He was from Guatemala, as most of you probably know. And then when I was a fellow at Emory, I had the opportunity to make a trip with Dr. Kirk Kanner and a medical team to El Salvador, where we were t- doing surgery. He was doing surgery. I was helping in the ICU and mentoring the local doctors. So that was the, what gave me the idea. And I had uh, run into Dr. Bill Novick at the STS meeting one year, that year, and Contacted him afterwards about the possibility of doing some work with him for the long term. I was thinking that I was going to do it for a couple of years and then return back to normal practice in the U.S. And it ended up that I moved to Nicaragua. I moved there in 2006 and stayed there for 10 years until 2016. And I worked in Nicaragua with, completely with a Nicaraguan healthcare team, Nicaraguan surgeon, anesthesiologist, ICU team, cardiologists, and started up a surgery program, which is still running there. And after about the first four and a half years or so, we had the program up and running enough, and I was able to start traveling with medical teams to also to other countries. I was based in Nicaragua. And I moved back to the U.S. in 2016 and for a period of time kept traveling from here. I'll say one thing that was really kind of shocking to me. When I started telling people at home that I was planning to move to Nicaragua, there were basically two reactions. One reaction was kind of not surprising to me. Some people said to me, oh, I wish I could do that. But then the other reaction was shocking and disappointing to me because there were quite a number of people, including some people who were friends of mine, who I would have thought knew me pretty well. The people said to me, why would you want to do that? You won't make any money. And I was shocked and really disappointed that people, especially people who knew me, would think that. That was the most important thing to me because obviously it wasn't the most important thing. I, you need to be able to support yourself. I needed to be able to support myself. I, I didn't have a family endowment or anything, or I hadn't been working for so many years that I had so much money saved up, but I wasn't really interested necessarily in having the job where I was going to make the most money. So I enjoyed that. It was for people who may have made a trip with a medical team somewhere. It's great to do that. It's really very different when you go somewhere and live. You really immerse yourself in everything, in the language. There may not be anybody necessarily around to translate for you all the time. In the culture, in the politics, I was very proud of myself when I found that I had learned enough, not only of the language, but also of the culture, to understand the political cartoons in the newspaper in Nicaragua because that's a whole other level of understanding what's going on. But it was really a fantastic experience for me. And I met a lot of people, again, not cardiac surgeons, but other people doing other things. And one of the things that was, I think, very moving to me at one point, we had several different US ambassadors during the time that I was there for 10 years. And One of the new ambassadors that came had hosted an event at the embassy for all the U.S. citizens who were doing nonprofit work in Nicaragua. And he, as part of his introductory remarks, he told us that he had the title of ambassador, but we were the actual ambassadors, that when people looked at us, they saw the U.S. And we were putting a good face on the U.S., and kind of making his job easier. I really like that. But I also um, spent a lot of time, I made many, many trips to Honduras, I made many trips to Ecuador, I made several trips to other Spanish-speaking countries in Latin America. Once I learned Spanish pretty well, I was one of the choice surgeons, obviously, to send to Spanish-speaking countries because I could talk to the local medical human in their own language, which is always really helpful. And also made quite a number of trips to both Ukraine and Libya where I had the opportunity to work with other women cardiac surgeons. And I really enjoyed that. I was a woman cardiac surgeon that they could relate to in a way differently than they related to the men, who came, obviously. So that was good too. Wow,
0: that's inspiring in, in so many ways, Dr. Brent. And Thank you for sharing that. Even now, many years later, people still have those reactions that you're talking about, particularly the negative ones where they ask why you would want to do this. And I think a lot of people that aren't as invested or aware of the true need of cardiac surgery in the global health field don't necessarily see any value in this. So thank you for being a leader in this field and helping be a role model for all of us now you're in quite a different role, and I was hoping you could let us know how you decided to make that transition and tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now with the NHLBI. Fair.
1: Sure. So I became a member of the STS Standards and Ethics Committee in 2010. And as a result of that experience, I developed an interest to study more ethics. And I took advantage of the ethics scholarship that the STSATS generously funded. And that partially offset the cost of getting a master's degree in bioethics, which I got in the Alden March Institute of Bioethics at Albany Medical College. I was thinking at the time that I began the master's program, I was thinking that I might have a, a career as a bioethicist later when I was old, right? Which I don't think of myself yet as being old. But what happened was my mom got stomach cancer and passed away in 2016, and she left my dad by himself, and he had never been by himself his whole life, right? So I had actually gone to to Tegucigalpa to look for an apartment because we felt like the Nicaragua program was completely up and running, and they had just moved the cardiac surgery program in Honduras to a new hospital, and I was going to go help them get that program started. But I felt like, for my family, that it would be better for me to move to the U.S. So I moved here, and I was halfway through my master's program then, and I finished the master's program. And I was looking at where I wanted to go with my career, because I, I was at a, obviously at a turning point in my career. And so I looked at different options. I looked at the option of traveling full-time from the U.S., but I didn't really feel that would accomplish my goal of spending some time with my dad. And then I was thinking of traveling part-time and working in the U.S. part-time, but I talked to several people whose opinions I highly value, friends of mine, who had transitioned from clinical careers in cardiothoracic surgery to other types of careers. And I really felt like this was the right time in my life to make a transition. So I started looking for where I could combine my experience in cardiac surgery, global health, and bioethics to do the most good, to contribute the most. And I landed at the NHLBI. I started off with a temporary fellowship position through AAAS in the Center for Translational Research and Implementation Science Global Health branch. And I was there for a year and a half and then got The permanent position. I have about a 20% appointment in the bioethics department, and the rest of my time is doing the science at NHLBI. I manage a branch that covers advanced technologies and surgery. So we actually run the cardiothoracic trials network that many of the people listening to the podcast may already be familiar with that. And I also have program staff who do predominantly cell biology, regenerative medicine. We do bioengineering, we do imaging, and we have a couple of people who do big data. So it's a very exciting branch to work in because it's really on the forefront of technology. When COVID hit, of course, we, NIH, is completely in the middle of COVID. So the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, when you think about covid the main complications of COVID are heart, lung, and blood, right? So we are doing all the research in the consequences of COVID and the treatment of COVID once people have it. So it's been a lot of fun, really. I'm very happy to be where I am.
0: That's wonderful. and, And so interesting to hear how you were able to transition into this role that is a great option to also know about as a cardiothoracic trainee. It seems that you are still involved in global health work, and I recently read an article that you published in JTCVS that's entitled Global Health Initiatives in Cardiothoracic Surgery, Ethical Considerations and Guidelines. This article highlighted some guidelines that you recommended for ethical practice in these underserved settings, and can you let us know what was the motivation for you to write this article?
1: So I had read an article several years ago when I was working on my bioethics master's thesis, actually, I came across a humanitarian guidelines paper that came out of the American College of Physicians. And I thought it was a great idea. And I brought that article and that idea to the joint sts ATS ethics forum, of which I'm still a member. And I said, we should put out Official guidelines from the STS and ATS on cardiac surgery global health work because there are a lot of things that tend to go on that people maybe they don't understand or they don't know what to expect. So that's where that was the motivation for that. It generated a lot of discussion, but we ended up convening a writing group, and as you saw, writing the paper it was really
0: exciting. You broke down the article to different phases of a surgical initiative, so before, during, and after. And one of the issues that you highlight is goal setting and having joint goals between the local team and the visiting team. How would you suggest to do this effectively, especially when there are always cultural differences and also differences in power dynamics that may sway the conversation?
1: So I think that a big part of that, we kind of joked, and I think we actually put in the paper that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We want to listen. We want to really listen to what people say to us and to what they want. A lot of times we come from countries where cardiac surgery is well-established and we have an idea of what they need, right? And it may not be what they think they need or what they want. And it may in fact actually not be what they need because they live there. We don't. And because we're the experts and we're viewed as the experts, it's probably better if we listen first before we talk, because people may not want to counter what we say. What is it that you have in mind? What do you want to do? And I think that a lot of the reason that sometimes things don't work out in places, it's because People are not invested because we're not really doing what they want. We're doing what we think is a good idea.
0: I guess you're saying that you really need to have a true needs assessment before you even embark on a journey like this. Right. And how do you suggest doing that effectively? And does it change depending on the country you're working in or the group of people that have invited you? It definitely changes
1: on both of those things. So there are different reasons that cardiac surgery doesn't exist in different countries. So people have an idea that it's just the money, you know, that if you throw money at it, then they'll have a cardiac surgery program. And sometimes it is financial resources. Sometimes financial resources are a big reason. I would say it's unusual that financial resources are the only reason that they don't have a cardiothoracic surgery program, but it can be one of one of the main things, but it may not be. I mean, we work in some countries where it's political, where it's organizational, where it's even, you could look at it a little bit as work ethic, or you could look at it as different goals. There are different reasons and you need to find out what the reason is in that particular place before you address it or try to address it. And the other thing is, I think that we have to not be naive and think that If other people have gone into a country or a city and tried to establish a cardiac surgery program and it doesn't work, it's worth trying really hard to find out why it didn't work rather than just assuming that we're going to do it better because that doesn't always happen.
0: That is a a really good point. Do you have an anecdote that you can share with us on how this issue came up and how you were able to resolve an issue or avoid a conflict?
1: So one of the things I think a lot of times we go into countries with a medical team, for example, and maybe the The local surgeon or the local anesthesiologist will be there one day and not be there another day or be late. For whatever reason, we may perceive that person to not be committed to the program. And in fact, what happens in many countries is unbeknownst to us, they have other jobs. And so it can be that that surgeon or that anesthesiologist actually has a patient in another hospital that has a complication or had an unexpected surgery or something happened. And if we don't ask them that, they may or may not volunteer it. I have seen that happen in a number of countries. And once you get a little bit more aware of what's going on, it becomes clear that it's not that the person's not committed. It's that the person has a patient somewhere else that we don't know about or has a family problem. But more often than not, it's because they have two or three different jobs.
0: Yeah, if you're not asking and assuming, that's always a recipe for a uh, big misunderstanding for sure. Exactly. Um, in terms of when you get to a program and you get to a place uh, that you're trying to build an initiative, you talk about in the article that the first thing to do is to do no harm to the patient that you're treating. But you also mentioned that in a resource-strapped setting, it's important to do no harm to other patients that you are not treating. So Can you tell us about a situation where this was the case and and how you resolved it? So I can tell you about it
1: generally. It's hard to balance out. So imagine you have a really sick neonate that's high risk. And let's imagine we are going into a country for a two-week trip every three months. And if you have a critically ill neonate, that child may not survive for the next three months until you come back if you don't operate on him or her right then on that trip. The problem is that if you operate on the baby, it's quite likely that the baby's going to tie up one of your five ICU beds because you probably only have five. I mean, depending on the hospital, but you have a limited number. And if you block the ICU beds, then you're shut down and you can't keep operating. And more children just get bumped off the list, if you will. And so it becomes a hard decision because the child that you canceled to do the neonate maybe has a VSD and that child will still be here in three months, but they might have really bad heart failure by then and be a less good candidate for surgery. And then there may be another child who has an ASD who just keeps getting postponed because it's never urgent. And eventually after a period of time also becomes not a great candidate for surgery. Um, So there's not a single answer to it. You just have to balance out all those things according to what you think you can do with your ICU beds, because it's usually the ICU bed situation that prevents you from doing more cases. And then the other thing is that you don't want to leave a critically ill child when you leave the country at the end of the trip if the local ICU team isn't really capable of taking care of them. And there's two reasons for that, two pragmatic reasons, but they're also ethical reasons. One thing is you don't want the child to have a bad outcome because you don't want the child to have a bad outcome, right? I mean, if the child's not going to survive, there's not really any reason to put the child and the family through surgery. Which is why there aren't that many countries where humanitarian teams do Norwoods, for example. We do um, Norwoods in a few countries where the ICU team is really good. But in most cases, they're not going to make it after we leave. So you don't even do that. Just operate on another baby. The other thing is that you always want to go into countries with the idea of helping mentor and helping hold up the local medical team because it's the right thing to do. But also because the long-term solution to the problem is for them to be able to run their own program. So if we operate on a child and the child appears to be okay until we leave and then the child doesn't make it, that more often than not get blamed on the local medical team. And that didn't help the child and it didn't help the local doctors either.
0: That's a very big responsibility to figure out who gets surgery. And I'm sure there's a lot of shared decision-making when you have to figure out what limited resources you have, who gets to have an operation and who doesn't.
1: That's true. And there's another thing that weighs into it sometimes. I mean, I have changed my return ticket more than once and stayed in a country with a sick child. And you can't always do that, but sometimes you can. In many countries, if the local ICU team is not that experienced, the team that goes in will plan on leaving an ICU team behind for A few days or a week or a week and a half after the surgical team leaves, but your long-term goal has to be program building or you're not really accomplishing all that much.
0: So you have really emphasized training the local team and building the local surgical capacity. Do you only start an initiative if you've identified a local surgeon that will be able to continue the work that you're doing?
1: So at one point in my career, I was taught to avoid the words always and never. So always, I mean, do you always i would say almost always you want to be able to identify somebody in each necessary role so you need a surgeon but you also need a cardiac anesthesiologist you also need an intensivist and you need appropriate nursing staff obviously cardiology although usually there are cardiologists already or we wouldn't be invited somewhere because they don't even have diagnoses So I would say in almost all circumstances, you want to have people identified in all of those positions that you're trying to train and mentor and bring along. It's unusual that you have them all at the same level. So for example, I've worked in some countries with adult cardiac surgeons that have variable levels of experience in adults and minimal to no level of experience in congenital heart surgery. So you're teaching them the congenital part of it. We've worked in a couple of countries with pediatric general surgeons. A lot of times in pediatric surgeons will do, for example, PDA ligations. They might do coarctation repair. So you're you're taking somebody who's experienced taking care of children and trying to teach them to do cardiac. Um, you might have for example, a cardiac surgeon who's trained, who's gone away to train and come back to their home country, but there's no cardiac anesthesiologist or no perfusionist. You need a perfusionist too. So you want to adjust the level of the, of the complexity of the cases you do almost to the level of the lowest person, if that makes sense, because you want to be trying to get them to do as much as you can. And again, not just the surgeon, but everybody on the
0: team. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I like the never say never or always. (laughs) Yeah, because it's
1: not that unusual, for example, that there isn't a perfusionist. If there's a country that hasn't been doing open heart surgery at all, there may not be anyone at all who's a perfusionist. And what you want to do when you go in there, you want to get started, you start doing your program, but you need to identify somebody that wants to be trained as a perfusionist. And it, it might be an intensivist, it might be an anesthesiologist, it might be a highly motivated nurse. But you want to train somebody as a perfusionist because otherwise they're not going to be able to operate when you're not there.
0: So That's a very good point. Um, one interesting piece of your article that I was reading is an ethical dilemma where you talk about shortages of medication and supplies, which are a frequent issue in these settings, and whether it's appropriate to use expired medical supplies or rest- resterilize disposable equipment and there are some that argue that this should categorically never be the case since we should have the same standards of care so it seems you have a different opinion i would love to hear what you think about that sure i
1: we actually talked about this a lot this isn't just me this is all of the co-authors on the paper we talked about it a lot and then we talked about it in the context of the ethics forum The focus of our paper is on patient-centered care. And so you have to always do what's best for the patient under the circumstances. We have uh, and we do sometimes use expired medications and expired supplies by the expiration date. We don't use things, obviously, that haven't been stored well or that aren't in good condition. And this has to be something that we're not doing it behind the backs of either the local medical staff or the local government. So, there are some countries, for example, where they won't let you import expired things. There are some countries where they won't let you import things that are going to expire within six months, kind of like your passport in some countries. But we, and if anybody has questions about it, I would encourage you to look at the references in the paper because there's a lot of good references. The US Army maintains a store of expired medications for emergency re- use, and there's a lot of good data showing how long. Many medications last for many, many, many years after the supposed expiration date if they're properly stored. So, the thing is that you want to be able to do the best thing for the patient. And if you're not going to be able to operate because you don't have any potassium that's not expired, but you do have potassium that expired last month, you know, (laughs) we uh, more often than not would operate if it's okay with the local team, if it's okay with the hospital administration, if it's okay with the government.
0: Got it. Yeah, I didn't know the Army did that as well. Um, After you finish a trip, how do you like to do a reflection with your team? And what do you think are some of the important points that you always cover in order to continuously improve on the next trip?
1: So, ideally, when we can, when we have time, and when there are not too many really critically ill patients, which we try to avoid at the end of the trip, I like to have, and we like to have, a kind of like an M&M conference, but more sitting around a table with your coffee and talking. So you want to talk first about any patients that had complications or died, just like we have M&M. What went wrong? We do it just like we do it at home. You know, was the pre-op, the intra-op, the post-op, was there an error in diagnosis? Did we not do the operation right? But then you also want to save some time for being able to talk about system right? What went well? What didn't go well? Did we do handoffs? Well, did people understand what was going on with the patient sort of a system thing? Because again, we're not making a one-time trip to countries. We're making sequential trips and, you know, as often as possible with a lot of repeat people. And we want to know how to do it better when we come back because we're coming back. That's pretty much it. Got it. I will say, you know, I don't know if you were going to get to this with your next question, but you also have to have a plan in place for communication after we leave. How are they going to be able to, who are they going to communicate with? Who's the ICU team going to keep informed about how the patients are doing after we leave? And who are they going to contact if they have questions or concerns? I had a nurse one time sending me, believe it or not, Facebook messages with blood gases of a child, you know?
0: like
1: okay uh that was from another country but it worked you know
0: yeah so. wow well dr fenton i i know you're extremely busy so i want to just thank you again and thank you for being a true pioneer in ct surgery do you have any last advice for our thoracic surgery residents and fellows who are interested in pursuing a career in cardiothoracic surgery and global health
1: um I guess my advice would be going back to what I said earlier. You know, don't wish you could do it. Just go ahead and do it if you want to do it. It's really a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. I think that you should do whatever most excites you with your career. And don't be afraid to try it. And don't be afraid to change.
0: Thank you so much again, Dr. Fenton. I know my colleagues listening to this podcast will really appreciate all your insights today. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it.